So how do you end up with a bad truth culture? You get a bad truth culture when you think you have to have a certain outcome and you become willing to neglect realities in order to get it. Better. 
You keep on getting better You keep on getting better You keep on getting better Oh, you are You're good In the morning I sing You are good In the evening I sing You are good You are good to me
Aloha, church. Let's get into our opening prayer. Let's prepare our hearts with, as I read from the book of Psalms, chapter 103. And as I do that, I want you to just, wherever you are, just calm yourself and just allow the word of God to just really penetrate everything that's going on. All right, so let's begin. Praise the Lord, O my soul. All my inmost being, praise his holy name. Praise the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits, who forgives all your sins and heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit and crowns you with love and compassion, who satisfies your desires with good things so that your youth is renewed like the eagle. I love this verse because it just shows how wonderful God is that no matter what's going on, that he is our refuge, that we can praise him because he's worthy. Um, that he's always there to renew us in our spirit, regardless of what's going on externally. So let's pray. Oh, gracious heavenly God, we thank you so much, Lord, that you are worthy. Oh, you're worthy. Thank you, Lord, that you just love us so much, God, that you desire for us, Lord, to just be connected with you. And so, Lord, I pray, Father, that as we just enjoy this service, we pray that it is really a blessing to you. God, be with us right now, Lord, in our homes, in our cars, at work, wherever we are, Lord, as we're just listening and watching, God, that you just touch us, touch us, Lord. Give us that sense of peace, Lord, in the midst of all the craziness around us, in our homes, in our life, in our personal, and in the community. God, I pray, Father, that you just bring your kingdom culture to our place right now. I thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Hi everyone, it's Daniel and Sora again. We had a chance to share about our 14-year infertility journey last Easter and just wanted to give an update and introduce you to the newest members of our family, Isaac and Joshua. They are now four and a half months and changing every day. Just yesterday, Isaac learned to flip from his back to tummy and Josh realized that he has a tongue. We've had so much fun, but are also so tired like Isaac is right now. It's hard to remember and process all that's happened to us sometimes. Things are going well, kind of, <laughs> but our pregnancy was a bit of a roller coaster. Early on, we were told that because both babies were growing in a single placenta, that there was a high risk of twin to tr twin transfusion syndrome, or TTTS, a discordance in the flow of blood and nutrients that might ultimately cause brain damage, organ failure, or even a stillbirth. Every appointment, and we had a lot of them, three a month, we were holding our breath until we heard the heartbeats and saw the measurements progressing within the safe zone. Worry after worry would spring up and we'd have to make a hard choice each time to give it to God. I think in many ways it was the beginning of parenting lessons, realizing that this is only the beginning of countless times when we would have no control over the lives of our children and need to entrust them to God. It didn't make it any easier emotionally, and we definitely had our share of cries, both out of fear and relief. And on May 8th, the weekend of Mother's Day, during what would have been a routine checkup, Sora was told that there was too great a size discrepancy between the boys, and an emergency C-section was recommended. It all happened so quickly. I checked in at 9 a.m., and by 3 p.m., we had two little boys. Isaac was born at four and a half pounds, and Josh just at three and a half. They were six weeks premature. Josh was so small and scrawny, he looked like an alien. I thought Isaac had really done some serious TTTS damage on him. Looking at them now, I'm so thankful they're doing well. I almost forgot what they were like. Isaac is now 14 pounds and Josh is 13 pounds. I never thought I could love someone so much so instantly. These boys can do whatever they want. I have emotion oozing out of my being for them. And it's made me wonder, does God love me like this? That would be so great. I really want this to be true. It would help free me. I've been trying for so many years to be a good, mature Christian that I think I skipped being God's baby. God, can I really cry and laugh and sleep and complain as I truly am? I'm tired of pretending to be something I'm not, so I want to trust that you see me the way I see my boys. It helps me to be myself. I experienced something similar. Um, I love it when the babies coo, and I've been asking God, 
Is this how you feel about me? Is this what prayer is? Where even just my babbling brings connection and joy? They're just four months now, but in many ways, I feel like the babies are wiser and freer than us. We're learning so much through them. There are so many people I want the boys to meet, so many who have lovingly prayed for them and have rejoiced with us at their birth. Isaac and Josh want to say that. That's his way of saying thank you, thank you. <laughs> and hope that we can all meet in person soon. Goodbye. Bye. Okay, that's enough. Hello, Blue Water. Thank you so much for being with us today. My name is Mindy. As restrictions are eased and we're able to kind of gather together in smaller groups again, um, I hope that we can find a way to meet up and to bless each other in a safe way. Um, this is the time where we kind of take care of some family business and make some announcements. Our first announcement, uh, after that wonderful testimony by Daniel and Sora, is that we're going to have a baby dedication. Uh, so their children, as well as some others, are going to be dedicated to the Lord, uh, presented to our community uh, through prayer. And it's just a great time for the community to uh, really be a part of raising these children. So if you would like to dedicate your baby as well within Blue Water, please email Antonio at AntoniaBlueWaterMission.org. Uh, this is also the time when we can, uh, you know, continue our worship with our tithe and offering. So uh, if you're a member of Blue Water, you know, it's a chance for you to practice generosity and also to prioritize with your finances, uh, giving to the Lord. So if you're new or visiting, please feel no obligation to give. Uh, this is just our gift to you. Uh, if you would like to give, you can give online at our new website, uh, bluewatermission.org. Uh, or you can also give through the post. So, that's it for announcements for this week. Uh, kids, if you would stand up, we're going to pray for you before we go on to our service. Well, Father God, we thank you so much for our children, um, from the newborn babies all the way through high schoolers. Lord, we just thank you for what a blessing they are um, and all the promise that you have in store for them. We pray, Lord, that this day you would fulfill those promises um, that you would, yeah, just raise them up um, and be with them in their learning and as they grow in you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We're in a sermon series on culture. Uh, specifically, we're talking about how culture, due to its pervasive influence, can take out good Christians before they know it. Uh, if you think about it, Satan probably doesn't spend a lot of time focused on ruining bad, immoral people. Well, Satan worries about ruining good people uh, because they are not ruined yet. In the first week of this culture series, we talked about groupism, how groupism can take out good people. It has to do with the fear of what people think of you. All Satan needs is for one group in your life, one social group, one peer group, one political group, to have slightly more influence over you than Jesus does in one particular way. That's all he needs. And then he's got you. He can manipulate you into increasing levels of ruin. In the second week, we talked about the danger in moral culture, uh, which is interesting because we don't think about morality being dangerous, but what happens to moral people sometimes is that they spend a lot of time trying to decide which error or which sin is the worst error. And what happens is that Satan gets you to think a lot about the bad error such that you gradually drift into committing the not-so-bad errors in life, and that's how he gets you. And today we're going to talk about the big dangers inherent in bad truth culture. Uh, it comes when you think you have to have a certain outcome, you have to have a certain truth outcome, and when you think you have to have a certain outcome, you become willing to neglect realities, other truths along the way, and that becomes crippling. Here's a statement. I think it's a Christian statement. Tell me what you think about it. Truth is a big deal. Yes? Yeah. We can agree on that? Accurate. Truth is a big deal. Jesus says, I am the truth. On the other hand, he calls Satan the father of lies, the progenitor of all falsehoods. And that's a 
fairly fundamental opposition. You could define truth simply as reality. Reality is simply that which is. And that's the sort of truth that I think we talk about most of the time. Uh, sometimes that which is, sometimes reality is pleasant. Sometimes realities are difficult. Uh, but at all times, we want to live according to reality, uh, because if we don't, reality has a way of catching up to you. True? Uh, you can live as though you are materially wealthy, but if that is not your reality, eventually the debt collector will come calling. Uh, the questions are, how can we actually, uh, how can we perceive what is actual? How can we perceive what is real accurately? And then, how do we live according to reality? Because that can be hard emotionally for us. A good truth culture helps us do both. You guys ever read uh, that famous book, A Road Less Traveled by M. Scott Peck? M. Scott Peck was a uh, psychiatrist uh, active in the 70s. He wrote this book, Road Less Traveled, in 1978, I believe it was. Uh, Peck started out, he was not a Christian, but he was very interested in what made for a healthy, fulfilling life for human beings. As he began investigating it, he discovered that, that one important quality uh, is a person's discipline toward truth. If a person could discipline themselves to adhere to reality, uh, then that person ended up being healthier, happier, and more fulfilled in the long run. The problem was the problem of pain. Life is difficult, is the opening line of the book, I believe. Uh, and he discovered that Christians were particularly good at enduring the pain that comes with being disciplined toward truth. And therefore, Christians had a tendency to be healthy, happier, more fulfilled people, and importantly to him, the tendency to create communities of people that were healthier than other communities of people. Uh, along the way, uh, given his discoveries, uh, Peck himself became a believer. Uh, quite famously. There's uh, this great story when M. Scott Peck first took this book uh, to uh, publishers. He took it to Random House at first, and Random House read it, liked the book, liked the research, but rejected it. And they told him it's because the end of the book was too Christy. Too Christy was their phrase as he tells the story. Uh, as in, they, they said to him, well, you know, we, we understand that this is how people are uh, healthy, happy, fulfilled, and create good communities, but why does Christ have to enter into it? Why does God have to enter into it? And that's a great question, actually. That's a great question. Jesus talks about it, not surprisingly. Uh, we have just a very short scripture today, reading from uh, the Gospel of John, uh, chapter 8, uh, verses... Uh, 31 and 32. Oh, heck, I might throw in verse 33 just because it's fun. And what's happening here, as is often the case, is Jesus is uh, talking, uh, debating with uh, some of the religious leaders of his day. Jesus is having some fruit uh, in his teaching ministry. Some people are coming to believe in him, becoming his disciples, uh, becoming to embrace God in a new way. To the Jews who had believed in him, Jesus said, <clears throat> If you hold to my teaching, then you are really my disciples. Then you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Hold to my teaching, be under my discipline, and then the truth will become apparent to you. And that truth will actually set you free will make you bigger, larger, more powerful. That's his promise. I'll throw in verse 33. They answered him, uh, meaning the religious leaders, we are Abraham's descendants and have never been slaves of anyone. How can you say that we shall be set free? In other words, they get offended and it all falls apart uh, because Jesus touched on a politically sensitive subject uh, as, uh, as he did sometimes. 
Uh, I love that saying from Jesus. That's a, pretty, that's a pretty famous saying. You probably have all heard that verse from John chapter 8. Uh, if you adhere to my teaching, you'll be my disciples. Uh, and the truth shall set you free. You will perceive the truth and the truth will set you free. Being a disciple of Jesus empowers you to perceive truth especially well. If you become a disciple of Jesus, your ability to perceive reality all around you, the reality of the universe, that ability goes way up. Let's say it simplistically. Christians perceive reality particularly well. Why? Uh, you know, it's a fair question. Uh, one, I think, is because they tend to be very moral people. You know, they avoid sin. And sin makes you stupid. It makes you stupid because, as we often discuss, sin controls you. And if sin controls you, well, the first thing it does is it controls your ability to perceive reality, truth, right? It starts to screw with your mind. You want the sin so much, you want the drug so much, that you start covering up truths and you start lying and this is sort of the classic behavior of an addict, right? And in some way, all sin is addictive. Uh, and so Christians, by being dedicated to, well, what you could call morality, to proper behavior, to being free from sin, um, have uh, one huge advantage when it comes to staying open to learning and seeing accurately, right? So that's one thing. Uh, I like the way that Paul says it in Ephesians chapter 4. He says that the, the non-believers uh, who had given themselves over to sin became darkened in their understanding. In other words, once you start cultivating and accommodating sin in your life, the first thing that happens is that suddenly you just can't understand reality very well. Like you're, you just become less... Uh, intelligent and perceptive. You know, sin crushes the brain. Sin makes you stupid. Let's say it. Sin, sin makes you stupid. Uh, the second reason, I think, uh, when you become Jesus' disciple, uh, you, uh, you perceive truth really well, is because disciples are disciplined. Go ahead, look that up. Right? That's the root of being a disciple, is, is, is the word... Uh, discipline. Being disciplined means that you're willing to endure pain for a greater good, right? That's what being disciplined means. And if you were a disciple of Jesus, then you will endure whatever it is that you have to endure in order to, as Jesus says, hold to his teaching or follow in his footsteps or to do what he tells you to do, right? So if you want to follow Jesus at all, you're going to have to cultivate the virtue of discipline. And that's an incredibly important virtue when it comes to being a truthful person because sometimes the truth is a bit awkward, a bit cumbersome, and a bit challenging. Uh, so that is another really huge advantage. There are other things that we could talk about, but Christians just have an advantage. Jesus' disciples have an advantage, not just in perceiving the truth about Jesus, but in perceiving the truth about all of the universe, all the facts of the universe. We're just particularly good at it. Uh, C.S. Lewis, one of my favorite authors, put it this way. I believe in Christianity as I believe that the sun has risen, not only because I see it, but because by it I see everything else. The light of the sun causes you to see everything else. It, what, it's what helps you perceive the world accurately. And you get a feeling for this when you're a Jesus disciple, right? You're like, wow, I just see everything more clearly now. I see relationships more clearly. I see science more clearly. I see philosophy more clearly. Everything comes, becomes uh, easier for you to apprehend. And then, at the end of this short passage, Jesus encourages us to live according to the truth because the truth is good for you. And I think that's actually a pretty challenging teaching right there. Is the truth good for you? That's a basic Christian question. Jesus says, the truth, you perceive it accurately, will set you free. And how many of you want to be free? 
Freedom good? good. Liberation good? Mm -hmm. I think there are often temptations to see the truth as something that constricts us. Oh, you know, if, if that's true, then my life has to become smaller. And that's just not how Jesus saw it. Jesus said, oh, the truth sets you free. A contentious statement. Do you think the truth sets you free? How do you think the truth might set you free? Truth sets us free because it dispels the enemy's lies. If the enemy has come to steal, kill, and destroy, what does he want to do? He wants to steal our identity, he wants to kill our purpose, and he wants to destroy our relationships. Um, when we become disciples of Jesus and we know the absolute truth of the Bible, um, it really does set us free because we stand on the, the rock of um, his foundation, right? And we don't need to be tossed and turned by what society says or what um, the circumstances are. We can really just move forward solidly. As hard as it is, like the more that I go through life, the more I'm thankful for people who are able to tell me hard things because that's what really I like sets me free in a way where I can grow and um, I don't know, just be more like well-adjusted and all the rest, so. In a lot of ways, in relationships, truth can just kind of take out the guesswork and the stress of that and um, in like cosmic purpose things and uh, truth relieves the, the stress of trying to make sense of it on our own. Uh, here's another quote from C.S. Lewis. I've been on a C.S. Lewis kick recently. Here's the quote. If you look for truth, you may find comfort in the end. If you look for comfort, you will not get either comfort or truth. Only soft soap and wishful thinking to begin, and in the end, despair. What do you think of that quote? That's a challenging one. It, it's a tough one. I think what he's saying is that seeking goodness, like comfort, without seeking truth will often lead you to grab at false goodness or false comfort because you don't have the wherewithal to discern between false comforts and true comforts unless you prioritize truth first. If you're not prioritizing truth first in life, then discernment is not your priority, right? Something else is. Truth first, reality first, and then everything else falls into its proper place. If you screw that up at all, you're making yourself vulnerable in life. Truth first is good truth culture. Seeking truth puts you in a position to discern where true comfort lies. Seeking truth first, prioritizing reality first, puts you in a position to discern what true goodness is. Goodness that will last and truly satisfy. Putting reality first puts you in a position to discern what is truly helpful instead of what is only helpful in a moment and then passes into something more destructive, as Lewis says. We have this modern phrase, tough love. How many of you have heard that phrase? Love must be tough, you know, that was a book. The idea of tough love. Do you understand what that means? Most of us do at this point. Tough love is love that is qualified by truth. You know, love that encompasses some uncomfortable facts. And we all know that there is a way to be loving towards someone. There's a way to be affectionate towards someone. There's a way to be supportive towards someone that kind of ignores truth, that ignores facts. And that that kind of love tends to actually be damaging in the end. And we have all sorts of little psychologies built around that. If, uh, again, to choose a simple analogy, if you want to love, be affectionate and supportive toward someone who is addicted to something, addicted to a drug or to drink, well, you can be very affectionate toward them, you can be very supportive, but if you completely ignore the addiction, 
all you're doing is propping up the addiction, right? So what the addict needs is tough love. You know, love that has some truth in it. Love that allows you to say, hey, man, you know, this is a hard truth, but dot, 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 here's your reality. And the most loving thing for me to do is to insist that you embrace reality. Um, and by now we're kind of comfortable with that tough love uh, analogy. Love rejoices with the truth, the Apostle Paul tells us in uh, 1 Corinthians. You know, they go together. And if they don't go together, well, not even the love works, even though most of us would say that love is the primary virtue in life. You know, without truth, if even, you know, an effort toward love can lead to ruin. In Ephesians 4, again, Paul says uh, to uh, the Christians that he is discipling, if you want to grow into maturity and unity, speak the truth in love. Um, you want to be helpful, that's the loving part, but speak truth uh, when you do it, well, otherwise it's not going to work. Otherwise you won't mature, you won't grow, and ultimately you won't get the unity that you pursue. How ironic that our attempts to be loving, our attempts to be nice and supportive toward people, might empower their ruin. But that's what happens when we're not fluent in truth. And we all know uh, that it can work that way, right? We all know that sometimes love has to be tough. Uh, and we all know that it can be tough. We all know that sometimes the, the truth can seem mean, can't it? It's like, wow, man, if I say this, it's just going to come across as really mean. It might cause a lot of problems. You know, it at least is going to cause some awkwardness. And that doesn't feel nice. You know, it doesn't feel loving. It doesn't feel comforting. And, you know, and I want to be comforting and nice and loving. And so there's this tension that we often feel. You know, truth can seem too mean to accept or too threatening to accept in some cases. But good truth culture recognizes that both truth and love are hard, but good. And that's the discipline. That's the discipline of the Christian disciple. Um, consider the classic courtroom scenario. You know, you got a judge, you got a couple lawyers that are arguing the case uh, before the judge. And that scenario is a pretty good symbol for truth culture uh, for most of us. But consider the difference between the lawyers and the judge in that scenario. The lawyers will do whatever they can to get a certain outcome in the courtroom, right? Because they're arguing their side of things. The judge's job is to find the truth overall, no matter what. Technically, the judge does not care which side wins. The judge is just on the side of truth overall, right? The lawyers are biased by definition. That's kind of their job because they concern themselves with the, the verdict and avoiding a verdict that they don't want. The judge concerns himself or herself with the truth, not with the verdict. The belief in jurisprudence and jurisprudential philosophy is that both lawyers are supposed to give their best argument for their side and the clash of arguments will somehow reveal the truth. Everybody does their best job to argue one side against the other and if everybody does a good job, well, the truth will become apparent uh, enough uh, in the courtroom. Uh, so it's almost as if the lawyers have an obligation uh, to be biased and that's sort of good jurisprudential ethics and that's probably the only time I will mention the word ethics and lawyers in the same sentence. <laughs> yeah, yes, yeah. Send your lawyer jokes to info at bluewatermission.org <laughs> and I'll be happy to read them all next week. Uh, but consider the mindsets in this analogy. Uh, if there is a, uh, a question in your life, if there's some uncertainty or some accusation in the air, 
you want to be a judge. You don't want to have a lawyerly mindset. If you are so concerned with the outcome that you can only fixate on one side of an argument or a controversy, um, then your chances of arriving at the whole truth are small. You understand? You might actually come to resent objective judges because they stand in the way of your outcome in life. We want to think like judges. We want to think like wise, objective judges in life. We don't want to think like lawyers. Uh, apologies to all of your lawyers out there. Elijah Yip, Seth Buckley, Joe Wisemantle, Dean Wang, talking to you guys. Good Christians, all of them. Uh, but we want to think like judges, not lawyers, or else we will see our side, but not the truth. Um, and if that's the case, we put ourselves in a vulnerable position because, again, reality has a way of catching up to you. You following me? In our society today, it seems like everybody's a lawyer and nobody is a wise, objective judge. Are you feeling me? It seems like that. We expect that sort of behavior from politicians. We expect politicians to argue their side and only their side. We used to not expect it from news reporters. But today I think it's incredibly clear uh, that pretty much all of our major news sources are extraordinarily biased, proudly biased, you might say. That's how they build their audiences. <clears throat> And it's not just that they're biased at this point, it's that they are playing fast and loose with the facts. I think we've come to a, a point where our, our major news agencies are, are sort of actively suppressing uh, truth uh, for the sake of ratings. So we have you know, a whole culture of unethical lawyers, as it turns out. Uh, we have uh, yet another tragedy uh, in the news uh, this week. Uh, <clears throat> and that uh, has to do with uh, the riots in Kentucky having to do with the death of, of Breonna Taylor. Uh, we've all been following that story, probably. Um, if you haven't, uh, she was a young lady that was shot in a police raid having to do with, uh, with drug trafficking. Uh, and uh, what we originally heard uh, was that Ms. Taylor was killed when some cops who uh, had a warrant um, burst into an apartment without knocking. It was the wrong apartment, uh, we were told by the news agencies, and they opened fire in an unprovoked sort of way, and unfortunately, uh, Ms. Taylor was killed uh, with that gunfire. Uh, and then there was an investigation, and uh, the authorities uh, have determined uh, that most of that original narrative was not factual. Uh, what actually happened is that um, the cops had a, a warrant, they knocked, they declared themselves uh, police, uh, so nobody opened the door, they burst into the correct apartment, not the wrong one as it turned out. Brianna Taylor uh, had been under investigation for her role in a drug ring that involved both her former boyfriend and uh, now her current boyfriend. She was with her current boyfriend, he opened fire on the cops. The cops returned fire in self-defense, and unfortunately, Ms. Taylor was caught in the crossfire, and she was killed. <clears throat> Crowds have been protesting this tragedy because anytime somebody gets, you know, shot and killed, that was not the intent of serving a warrant, which is just to get somebody to come into court. Uh, but whenever that happens, that's tragic. People have been protesting the tragedy. But now there's a double tragedy because the protests have upped in violence. A cop got shot um, in, in the protests uh, just a couple days ago, and there will probably be more uh, violence and more deaths, I would assume, uh, because uh, crowds are rioting because they cannot accept the new narrative. It's an argument over the truth. And what truly happened that night? when Breonna Taylor was killed. Because people insist that their side is right, what we're going to see is increasing destruction. 
I have a feeling that the facts are not the priority in this case. Uh, the priority is whether or not people feel heard, people feel cared for, and those are very compelling things. But without the discipline of the truth in this situation, uh, a priority on facts, well, predictably, violence begets violence begets more violence. And what we're going to see is expanding circles of death, something that nobody wanted. I think in complex situations like this, it is possible to have a loving solution. But you can't have a solution that isn't based on respect for the truth, uh, respects for facts, and a patience for truth and facts. And uh, we're just not seeing that these days. We're just not seeing that these days. Uh, because everything is at fever pitch. Um, so it seems like we have a culture of lawyers. Everybody's acting like a lawyer. Everybody is pressing their own side at all costs. And we don't have a culture of wise, objective judges who are just interested in the truth surfacing so that proper solutions can be built. Compassionate solutions, one would hope. You could also say, I think, that our society has become very religious. Our society is divided into sides, and each side has its own orthodoxy. And if you are part of a group, you are not allowed to accept facts that don't fit your orthodoxy. You see Jesus struggle against this sort of thing in the Gospels. He's always fighting against the Pharisees, who were definitely a religious group. They would have called themselves a religious group. Um, and uh, they could just not update their belief to accommodate a Messiah that looked like Jesus. So he's constantly arguing with them. The Pharisees were sort of the conservatives of their day, the conservative, orthodox, religious group. <clears throat> but religion in general has that spirit, and the religious spirit can crop up anywhere, even among people who don't believe in God. They can be very, very religious uh, people. And if you go to any sort of religious society today that isn't Christian, go anywhere in the world, walk into a religious society that isn't Christian expressly, and you will find uh, a stunning absence of truth culture. What you will get instead is rampant groupism. In Christian culture, there's a tremendous openness to debate and facts and examination. I've traveled all over the world. It's the only culture where that is true. Um, how many of you have ever seen a debate between a Christian and an atheist, a public debate staged? Yeah. Go to an Islamic nation and try to find a debate between a Muslim and a Christian or an atheist. How will that debate go in a Muslim nation? Yeah, one, the, the Islamist will win, definitely. Um, but it's not likely to be allowed or welcomed. Christians have a tradition of examining themselves, of examining what they believe constantly. That is a Christian tradition. We examine what we believe uh, in the light of science. We examine what we believe in the light of psychology. There are tons of books in a Christian bookstore about like, you know, the faith versus science or, you know, what the church used to believe and how it is growing. All of these things you can find in Christian bookstores, uh, but you don't find it in other religious societies. Go to a college campus today. Uh, you can find debates about, you know, Christians versus atheists, maybe, but will you find debates where people debate, oh, whether or not uh, sexuality is genetically determined, or whether transgenderism is healthy. Can you find that debated on college campuses today? No, because there would be protests about hate speech and what can be allowed, right? You cannot examine things freely anymore because there's sides to things. And one side believes in an orthodoxy and no other facts are allowed. We're sort of losing the ability to be non-religious about how we examine facts and truth and progress. 
Christians constantly examine what they believe. You know, we're constantly examining what we believe against our life experiences, you know, science, psychology. You don't find this anywhere else. Don't believe the myth about Christian closed-mindedness. That is a myth. Um, you can find closed-minded Christians, but it doesn't come from Christianity. It doesn't come from Christ. And we'll talk about this uh, later in our uh, sermon series on culture. Uh, when we talk about what uh, the Christian faith has brought uh, to uh, cultures around the world. But this generally, I think, is why we get all of these light analogies in the Bible. Jesus is called the light of the world. Jesus speaks to his followers, to us, and says, well, you guys are the light of the world uh, as well. Light is that thing by which you see other things. Once you trust God, then and only then will you be able to see and accept reality in all of its breadth. If you don't trust God, if you don't understand that he made all things for a purpose, if you don't understand that he loves you no matter what, if you don't trust him to make meaning out of your life, if you don't stick to his liberating moral precepts, then you will live life like a lawyer at best. You will argue your side. You will be afraid of verdicts. You will shut down facts that don't help you with your case. So uh, let's break it down a little bit. Uh, what's bad truth culture and what's good truth culture? Bad truth culture is driven by preferred outcomes instead of being driven by honesty and truth and facts and reality and things like that. Bad truth culture might like truth, but not as much as it likes security or comfort or compassion. And as a result, it ends up destroying security and comfort and compassion. That's the thing. Bad truth culture always becomes cruel. Bad truth culture always becomes cruel um, because it has to be intolerant um, to the extreme. It has to shut things out and shut things down. That's how bad truth culture can take you out. Even if you're a good Christian, you value things more than you value the whole truth. Good things like security and, and, and comfort and compassion and goodness. But you have to have the discipline of truth and whole truth in there. Otherwise, it can take you out. Reality has a way of catching up to you. It tempts you to think that truth is mean or threatening but falsehoods destroy everything eventually, even the good things that you embrace. The other dangers that we've already talked about in this series, you know, the dangers of groupism or moral selectivism, which is what we talked about last week, both of those things encourage an editing of truth, or to borrow a phrase that we use today, political correctness, uh, which is a culture in which you can't say certain things even though you know them to be true uh, due to you know, political or social or group pressures. And that sort of thing will always end up killing people. Wherever the truth is edited even a little bit, eventually that will end up with great destruction instead of setting you free, right? Truth sets you free, but a disrespect for truth makes you a slave and a prisoner. It does not go well in the end, even though it's tough at the beginning. You have to think about the end. And this is a problem as old as human civilization. You know, right now, our society is in the grip of it, but Good truth culture is an incredibly rare thing, which is one reason I lament the loss of good truth culture uh, in the US uh, today. It's precious where you find it. And I think as a society, we are losing our grip on it. Well, what is, what is good truth culture then? Let's just talk about that. Uh, well, I mean, let's imagine the courtroom scenario again. 
let's imagine a couple of lawyers arguing their case before the judge. Imagine a courtroom in which there is judgment but no sentencing. That's a picture of grace. Well, you can argue your case, you can get to the truth, but the gavel doesn't fall on anybody. There's no blame casting necessary. You know, truth, but no blame. There's reality, you know, facts are honored. They are discovered, they are revealed. Principles are upheld. We get to God's own truth in this courtroom. But it's done in a spirit of total generosity, forgiveness, lack of offense. If you can imagine a courtroom like that, well then I think you can imagine good truth culture. Grace is what makes for good truth culture. Grace is judgment, is discernment. Grace is an adherence to truth in a spirit of generosity, uh, without blame or taking sides. Only if you understand grace will you be a truthful person. Only a culture that embraces grace will be a good truth culture. You take grace out of it, take that spirit of generosity out of it, and truth culture will always fall apart. Always. Uh, only a culture of grace will be a strong truth culture. Because without grace, we end up being scared, right? We end up being scared of the verdict, don't we? So we have to understand grace as we apprehend truth. Or instead of a courtroom, maybe to understand it, you might imagine a hospital room in which you are the sick patient. And there are a group of doctors arguing, arguing uh, their opinion as to what is making you sick, because it's mysterious. You want them to be humble, and you want them to be generous with each other as they argue, because what you care about as the sick person is the truth, right? You don't care who wins. You just want them to get at the truth so you can get better. And so what would you do? You would encourage a spirit of generosity and humility and a lack of offense in that room because you realize that the truth is important to health. No truth, no health, right? The sides become less important in that scenario and that's how it should be in life. And I think most of us have an intuitive appreciation of that. Uh, when I talk recently about the great issues of our day, about the race crisis or or maybe the, the, the plight of black Americans, or coronavirus health policy, or about the presidential election, I find that people are listening closely to what I say because they want to decide what my bias is. Because they think I'm a lawyer. Because everybody's conditioned to think like a lawyer. That's what the assumption is. Really, I'm just trying to be objective and helpful. In the world. I'm trying really hard to be a wise, objective judge. Uh, that's really out of fashion. <laughs> it's so out of fashion that people aren't even imagining it anymore. And I think if people understood grace better, that there is such a thing as grace, then they'd probably believe me better. It's like, I'm just trying to get to the truth of the situation because I want health. I want health. Reality equals health. Um, but grace is utterly foreign in the world. I say it over and over again. Grace is the most foreign of all Christian concepts. Almost nobody understands grace. And let me be honest with you, most Christians fail to understand grace. It is the most controversial thing I ever preach about, whether I'm preaching here at Blue Water or around the world. Whenever I talk about grace, somebody gets offended. Uh, it's hard. Grace is hard. And it is uniquely Christian. We are the only people on earth who have grace. You know, um, those we influence, maybe. And grace is what defines our truth culture. It's what makes truth culture life-giving. It's the, it's the tonic that makes it all work.
Uh, so let's get down to an application point. You gotta end these things with an application point. And when you're talking about truth, what in the world could you say for an application point? You're talking about healthy truth culture. You know, what, what do you say uh, to make people dedicate themselves to truth? That's a huge topic. Um, so let me just say something that's like ridiculously small and practical, kind of ridiculously um, manini. I wanna, I wanna teach you a phrase. And, and the phrase is this. Here's something I know is true and I think it should be helpful. That's it. Here's something I know is true, and I think it should be helpful. Let's say that together. One, two, three. Here's something I know is true, and I think it should be helpful. Most of you are awesome. Some of you need a dose of reality. Uh, I just think that's a really useful thing to say when you're having uh, a discussion about truth of, of any sort. When you have a discussion about life of any sort, um, truths are powerful things. So, say, well, here's something I know is true. And therefore, I think it should be helpful to what we're talking about. What do you think? Right? And then the focus is on truth as helpfulness, as opposed to truth as winning. Winning. The first thing I have to tell married couples who come in for marriage counseling and they're arguing with each other is I say, don't ever try to win. Because as soon as you win, you lose. M married people, can I get an amen? amen. Oh, oh, we know this. We know this entirely. Somehow I think husbands know it more, uh, having experience. They might be worse at it, uh, but they understand if you win, you lose. You lose. And we all win all that. So don't try to win. Try to progress. And that's just a very different thing. And truth just really helps you progress in life. Really, it sets you free, right? It sets you up for increasing freedom and power. So I think, well, okay, here's something that's true. Here's, here's a fact. I want it to be really helpful. And there's something about that spirit that begins to communicate grace and generosity. So I think it's enormously helpful. You don't have to say those words, but it's just the idea that I think is helpful. You know, you could say something like, well, here's a fact. Now, how can we use that well? It captures the same spirit. You understand it? Uh, here's a fact. How can we bring it to bear helpfully on this situation? And then somebody might say to you, well, I don't think that's a fact. Oh, well, I mean, I, I, I think it is. And then you could talk about the fact, but in a spirit of like, we want to make this helpful. So here's, here's a fact, how, how, can we use it? how can we use it well? And uh, try it, try it. Uh, truth is healthy. Use it in a spirit of generosity and helpfulness and you might release a great deal of kingdom culture around you, a great deal of grace, a great deal of clarity, a great deal of helpfulness, and some miracles. He who has ears to hear, let him hear, as Jesus would say. Father God, we want to be uh, people of truth and not people of falsehood. We want to be people of reality and uh, not people of argument. And so I pray, Lord, for a supernatural apprehension of the truth of grace for us Christians. That you would match our dedication to the truth with a passion for grace. I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would minister to those who are listening right now. By your Spirit, Lord, um, you would give them a pre-verdict. You tell them all, it will be okay. The outcome will be okay. 
the truth will set you free. Work, Lord. I pray, Lord, that um, honesty would be refreshing. I pray, Lord, that you would defeat the spirit of contention uh, with the spirit of love. <clears throat> it is a uniquely Christly thing. I pray, Lord, that we would be Christy people. And in his name we pray. Amen. Hey, Blue Water. Hey. Thanks for joining us online this week. I love what Jordan was saying about truth and how truth is actually reality, especially according to how God sees things. Not how we always see things because sometimes that can get distorted by the pain or the um, trauma or the lies that we have. But when we actually line up and come into agreement with God's perspective, then we actually are set free to overcome those very things that were distorting our sense of reality. Mm. Wow. That's really good. If you need prayer today, we would love to pray for you. So please email julie at bluewatermission.org between the hours of 10, 30, and 11 this morning. Please include your name and your phone number and someone will get back to you. Well, that's it for this week. I want to encourage you as you're going out that because of Christ that is in you, you carry the solutions and the answers and the love that this hurting world really, really needs. Woo. So I'll just bless you as you go out and we'll see you next time. Bye-bye.